Well, hi, everyone. Uh, it's really nice to see everyone's faces on Zoom. Really uh, missing being able to see you guys in person, but it's awesome to be joining together. Um, uh, just a heads up that the section on Saul goes from chapters 9 to 15. Um, we're going to be focusing on two kind of episodes, as you'll see, as we get kicked off. But I would encourage you to have a read through this, this whole section at some point, because uh, there's so many things in there that I'm not going to be able to have time to drill into. So yeah, take some time over this next week to look at uh, chapters, all of chapters 9 to 15. But how about I pray now for God's help as we uh, come to his word. So please, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your life-giving word given to us. We pray that today we'd have hearts open to hear it and to respond in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, who's in control of your life? Is it you or is it God? A friend of mine is a pilot for Qantas. And I remember chatting to him uh, while he was at uni, while he was still learning to fly planes. Uh, and at that point, he was only flying little planes. And uh, he uh, would go up and fly with an instructor all the time. But while he was mid-flight, the instructor would hand over control to him. Uh, and they, uh, they had this special drill which they do every time that he could have the reins of the plane. The instructor would say to him, uh, you have control. And he would repeat back, I have control. Then the instructor would repeat again, you have control. And then he'd let go. And my mate would take the reins, take the, the control of the plane and fly it. Uh, they do this every time uh, controls were handed over. See, for them, it was crucial for the safety of both of them that there was no ambiguity of who is flying the plane. And the same should be said of our lives. There should be no ambiguity of who's in control of our lives. It's either you in the driver's seat or it's God. And you know, if I'm honest, I so often live my life thinking I'm the one calling the shots. Over the past two months, uh, my family's plans to travel to Sydney uh, and come back two weeks later were all thwarted. It didn't go according to our plans. And even this week, we've all had a taste of that again, haven't we? As we've been thrown back into lockdown and not knowing when it will end. I wonder, what do you do in those moments? Where do you turn when life and plans come crashing down? The issue of who's in control is actually a central issue of one senior. Last week, we saw that God's people, once again, were in a crisis situation. Samuel, their faithful leader, was getting old. His sons were corrupt, so they were looking for a new leader. And instead of looking up and crying out to God, they looked around. They looked around at the foreign nations the, and they said, actually, that's what we need. We need a king like them. They didn't look to God who'd graciously raised up Samuel, who'd rescued them and saved them, who'd defeated enemies for them. They reject God as their king. They say, we want one of us calling the shots. We want a human on the throne. Samuel warns them of the choice they're making, but he also makes it clear what the king's role is. The ultimate job of the king is to listen and obey God's commands. The king is meant to lead the people in obeying God. He's to submit himself to God's control by obeying God's commands. See, the king is kind of like the co-pilot with God you know, driving and steering the plane. And today, today we're going to meet this first king of Israel and see what he's like. How does he go at obeying and listening to God's commands? 
So if you have your Bible there, I'm going to read from chapter 9, verse 1 for us now. And as we introduce to this king, so have a look. I think it might even come up on the screen there as well. It says this, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zior, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Saul here is introduced to us. Uh, this is the guy who's going to be Israel's first king. He looks impressive, doesn't he? If, he, if there was a Mr. Israel contest, Saul would be one of the favourites. Uh, but this short description of Saul maybe should raise a few red flags for us. Because all we're told about him is that he's handsome and tall. Now, if I wanted two physical attributes to describe myself, I'd definitely love to be called handsome and tall. Even over the past year, I've had um, someone refer to me as, as the short, balding pastor at City on a Hill. But for, for Israel, physical characteristics are of lesser value. Remember what the, the ultimate job of the king is? It's to listen and obey God's commands. So it's surprising here that when we're introduced to Saul, we don't hear anything about his character or his devotion to God. But through chapters 9 to 11, it seems like Saul is, 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 is going to do a great job. In chapter 9, he's anointed by Samuel. Chapter 10, he's to announce to the people and they celebrate. And then chapter 11, he defeats one of the surrounding nations. Saul seems to be getting it right at the start of his reign. But the question we're going to keep coming back to this morning is, will he be a king who listens and obeys God's commands? Will he submit himself to God's control? And to do that, we're going to look at two episodes of Saul's life. And so the first one's in chapter 13. And the title for this episode, if you like, is Will Saul Obey God Under Pressure? And so Joel's going to read uh, chapter 13, verses 1 to 14 for us now. Thanks, Joel. Hello, Koto. Um, today's reading is, um, as Paul said, from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 to 14. And I'm going to be reading from the interna New International Version. So chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back home to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geber, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that the army was hard-pressed, they hid. In caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns, some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. 
He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out, went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's, Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Thanks for that, Joelle. Uh, well, so here in chapter 13, we, we have a reoccurring problem, don't we, for Israel? Did you see it? The Philistines. These guys are just like a bad nightmare. They won't go away. They get knocked down and they get back up again. Jonathan, Saul's son, sees this problem and he takes the lead and he goes out and attacks one of their outposts. But this causes, you know, a brief moment of celebration for Saul. But then the Philistines amass a huge army to fight against Israel. Did you see the situation there? There's 3,000 Israelite soldiers against 3,000 Philistine chariots, 6,000 Philistine charioteers, and as many soldiers as, as there are sand on the seashore. This scene seems like the end of a Marvel movie, doesn't it? The good guys seem to be, you know, outnumbered, hard-pressed, with an impossible task of defeating the enemy. And from a military point of view, Israel looked doomed. And this is exactly how the soldiers react. Look at verse 6. How do they react? They hid wherever they could. In caves, under rocks, in pits, in cisterns. Some crossed rivers to get away. They were that afraid. But how does King Saul respond in this situation? Well, verse 8 says he waits. He does nothing but wait. Seems like the, the opposite thing you'd expect at this situation, isn't it? But here, it's actually the right thing. Back in chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel had told Saul to go down to Gilgal, where they are, and wait for him seven days. Samuel was going to come down and offer a sacrifice to God and then tell him what to do. So Saul waits the seven days, but Samuel still doesn't arrive. And you can just imagine Saul there in his tent, looking out, seeing more and more soldiers deserting him. He's watching the horizon thinking, please, Samuel, appear. Where are you? Be getting more and more anxious. And finally, he reaches his limit. He says, enough is enough. I'm not waiting anymore. So even though only a priest could offer a sacrifice, Saul offers the sacrifice. He takes matters into his own hands. But as soon as he finishes, Samuel arrives and says to him, what have you done, Saul? Saul responds in verse 11. He says, I saw the troops. They were leaving. I saw the Philistines assembling. I was afraid. I had to take control of this situation. And I, I think if you're anything like me reading this, you kind of want to sympathize with Saul. His situation was getting worse by the moment. 
And he, he'd waited seven days. If anything, Samuel was the one in the wrong here. Samuel was late. But Samuel doesn't share this sentiment. He says in verse 13, you fool, Saul, you didn't obey the Lord's command. For Samuel, it was as clear as day. Saul disobeyed God's word. He didn't wait for Samuel to arrive. You see, Saul is kind of a near enough is good enough kind of guy. He was prepared to obey for so long, but when the crunch came, when the heat was on, he didn't trust God was in control. When the heat was on, all Saul could see was look around and see the problems. He'd forgotten about God's faithfulness in the past, like in chapter 5, where God single-handedly, when, Israel, when the Philistines took the ark, he decimated the Philistine towns. Or like in chapter 7, when God had thundered from the heavens and put the Philistines into a frenzy, Saul had forgotten nothing can stand in the way of God. Tim Chester, a pastor and writer, he says this. He says, Saul's problem was that he acted as though, he acted as though God was not going to act. I wonder, when are you tempted to believe that God isn't in control? Maybe you're tempted to think it in those moments when you're chatting with your neighbour or friend and you want to steer the conversation to Jesus. But all that you can think are about a whole bunch of problems, a whole bunch of obstacles. You worry that you don't know exactly what to say. You're afraid because you don't have all the answers. Maybe past experiences taught you that it's not well worth putting yourself out there because they're never going to listen. They don't want to know about Jesus. I wonder in those moments, are, we, are you like Saul? Do you forget that God is in control? That God is the one who works to save people? That God is powerful to bring anyone from death to life? It's not about how eloquent or convincing our words are, but it's about trusting God. Maybe you're fine with putting yourself out there, but I wonder, are you tempted to think God isn't in control when you pray? Do you take matters into your own hands before coming to God in prayer? When you're, when you're stricken with anxiety and fear about a situation, do you, do you turn to Google to give you answers or do you turn to God in trust? Do you pray big prayers knowing that nothing can stand in the way of God? For Saul, he didn't believe God was in control. He looked around and thought, I need to take matters into my own hands. He didn't listen and obey and his disobedience ultimately resulted in him, the kingly line being stripped from his family. That brings us to our second episode of Saul's life and that's in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And the title for this episode is, Will Saul Learn from His Mistakes and Obey God? And so Felicity is going to read verses 1 to 12 for us. Kia Church. This is 1 Samuel 15, verse 1 to 12. The Lord rejects Saul as king. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. 
So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Tilliam, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. Thanks, Felicity. Well, did you see God's command to Saul here in chapter 15? It's quite a striking command in verse 3. He says, go and destroy the Amalekites. Completely wipe them out. Spare nothing. This is a, a shocking command, isn't it? Destruction of a whole people group. This is full on. We might, we might ask, how can a loving God command such cruelty and destruction? But like any part of the Bible, it's really helpful to read it in light of the whole Bible. See, it's helpful to know the judgment on the Amalekites isn't arbitrary. They faced this judgment because of the way they had treated God's people when they fled from Egypt. The Amalekites uh, back in Exodus had attacked the stragglers of the Israelites as they fled from Egypt. Like hyenas, the Amalekites cut down the vulnerable, the women, the children, the elderly as they escaped. See, this command from God is a just judgment on the Amalekites' sin. But there's also another side of God we see in these commands, in this chapter. If you look a little bit closer, you can see that God is gracious and patient. We see in verse 6, we see this as Saul speaks to another nation, the Kenites. He says to them in verse 6, Go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. In contrast to the Amalekites, the Kenites were a nation that treated God's people with compassion when they came out of Egypt. And here God spares them from the judgment. What's more, God had graciously given the Amalekites 300 years to repent of their actions. He'd been patient with them, waiting for them to recognize their sin. But they'd continued on in their wickedness. See, God's judgment on the Amalekites is actually a picture of how God treats any sin. When God's judgment is poured out, nothing is left. The judgment on the Amalekites is is not just an exception from ancient history, but a pointer and a warning that there is a day coming 
when all will come before God and be judged. But maybe this command to destroy the Amalekites maybe still leaves you feeling very uncomfortable and still with lots of questions. Well, if that's the case, I'd love to send you some things that I found helpful in my reading this week. So write it on your comment card and I can flick you out some stuff this week. I'd love to do that. But let's, let's get back to the story. Saul's been given this command to destroy the Amalekites. He goes, he musters a huge army, but he doesn't fully obey God's command. Look at verse 9. Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, and everything that was good. Saul once again takes matters into his own hands. He decides not to waste or kill any of the good livestock, and he spares their king. He then goes down to Carmel, where he sets up a monument in honour of himself. And I think here we get an insight into the heart of Saul. He's disobedient and he's proud. Saul, uh, Samuel hears about this situation, what Saul's done, and he goes down to confront him. But Saul, rather than, you know, hiding his guilt, like, you know, when my daughters have done something wrong, they'll go and hide somewhere in the house, embarrassed because they've been found out. Saul meets Samuel face to face and says to him in verse 13, Lord, bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. See, Saul is in complete denial about what he's done. But Samuel, he, you know, without missing a beat, he says, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? That I can hear in my ears then. You know, Samuel cuts straight to the chase. He, 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 he knows that Saul hasn't obeyed. He can hear things that haven't been destroyed. But Saul, he doesn't admit that he's disobeyed God. Rather, he gives a truckload of excuses. He says in verse 15, oh, it wasn't me. He blames the soldiers. They were the ones who brought back the animals. Or also in verse 15, he goes, no, no, we got the animals to sacrifice to you, God. But Samuel once again says, you didn't fully obey. And then Saul, like a broken record, blinded by his own sin, says in verse 20, I did obey. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. Is Saul even listening to what he's saying? You see, in Saul's mind, partial obedience to God's commands is good enough. But with God, 90% obedience is 100% disobedience. Near enough is not good enough. Saul's dis disobedience to listen and obey God's word ultimately leads him to being rejected by God. Have a look at verse 26. This is Samuel's talking to him. He says, you have rejected the word of God and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Did Saul listen and obey God? Did he do his role as king? He didn't, did he? He lived his life deciding what could be obeyed and what was optional. He lived his life as if he was God. And my question to you this morning is, who's in control of your life? It's either you or God. This is the choice we all face. And a, a helpful diagnostic question to know who is in control is, do you listen and obey God's word? Have a think back over the past week. Did God's word shape how you used your words? Did God's word change how you used your time? Did God's word impact your bank balance? Did God's word change how you interacted in your relationships? If we're honest, 
we all fail, don't we, to fully listen and obey God's word. We commit the same sin as Saul. We kind of, we treat God's word like a pick and mix at the supermarkets. You know, those ones, I wonder which bits you like to take and which bits you leave behind. For me, every time I would choose the gummy bears and the Coke bottles, but I'll leave the, the dried ginger. I don't want that. And that's, you know, how we treat God's word. The bits we like, we accept and obey. You know, we, we like the Bible's idea of rest or what we think it means. So we accept that and obey that. We like the Bible's idea of caring for others. But when God's word says to use our money for him, we say, hold up a second. That's, that's my money. That's off limits, God. Or when God's word says to daily deny ourselves and follow Jesus, we say, that's a bit extreme. We say, I already give you Sunday, God. You know, that's the day I serve and commit to you. We say to God, we say that he has control over our life. But when maybe we see God leading our life down a certain direction, maybe a way we don't like, we yank the steering wheel off him and say, God, I can do a better job than you. We hear God's word and we say, I don't want God to tell me how to live. But praise be to God that Saul is not the only king of God's people. He was just the first in the line of a mixed bag of kings. Many years later, after Saul, came another anointed king, a king like no other king, a king God's people needed, a king we all need. That was King Jesus, who on the night before he was crucified, cried out in anguish, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus completely obeyed and listened to God. He completely submitted his life to God's control. Even to the point of death, he submitted himself to God. And by his willing obedience, he offers us life today. Romans 5.19 puts it beautifully. It says, For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. See, Jesus took our place on the cross to make us righteous, to wash us clean, to take the punishment we all deserved for our disobedience and rejection of God. He obeyed when we didn't. And he was rejected so we don't ever have to be. So how do you respond to King Jesus? Well, I think it's quite simple. You come to him humbly and thankfully. You humbly come to him and confess. I've, I've failed to live for you, God. I failed to obey your word. You come clean. You don't come with a bag of excuses. You say, I haven't lived your way, God. I've lived my own. And for that, I'm sorry. And then you thank Jesus for his precious blood that was spilt for you. And that by his obedience, your disobedience is washed away. And then finally, you declare, I want to live for you, Jesus. Take my life and let it be devoted all to thee. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today humbly and full of thanks. We come to you humbly knowing 
this week, this year, we haven't lived in obedience to you. We've tried to control our own lives without you in the picture. And for that, we are so sorry. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, who is completely obedient, who is obedient to the point of death. Thank you that by his obedience, our disobedience can be washed away. Help us, Father, from today onwards to be people who give our lives over to you, to people who hear your word and seek to fully obey it. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.